High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the latest installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting the reads and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. In our last episode on Charlie Chaplin, which re-ran on this feed last week, we talked about the making of The Great Dictator, Chaplin's parody of Hitler, in which he played both a version of Hitler and a Jewish barber living in a ghetto. That film was Charlie's biggest ever hit at the box office, but reviews published around its release in 1940 indicated that reception to the film was mixed. In the years after the release of the movie, it was Chaplin's off-screen life that dominated headlines. In 1942, third wife and co-star in The Great Dictator, Paulette Goddard, 
went to Mexico to get a divorce. Chaplin was busy at the time making political speeches advocating support of the U.S.'s new allies, the Soviet Union, through the opening of a second Eastern World War II front. That fall, a distracted and lonely Chaplin fell into a relationship with a woman named Joan Berry, who, after a series of bizarre incidents, sued Chaplin for paternity of her child. By that time, Chaplin had already taken his fourth and final wife, Una. With the -the behind-the-scenes support of J. Edgar Hoover, Berry's lawsuit was followed by a grand jury indictment of the comedian on the Mann Act, a dated anti-prostitution statute which Chaplin had allegedly broken by buying Barry a train ticket. The Mann Act case, if successful, would have allowed the U.S. government to imprison or even deport the British-born Chaplin. And this, apparently, was Hoover's goal. Chaplin was an internationally famous performer and filmmaker who controlled his own apparatuses of production and distribution via United Artists, and who was developing into a vocal critic of war, capitalism, and by extension, the American way of life. In the climate of paranoia that began during the war and shifted into full-on hysteria in the late 1940s, a powerful dissenter like Chaplin was easily transformed in the eyes of people like Hoover and Hedda Hopper from an annoyance to a mortal enemy. But the Mann Act case was flimsy and it soon fell apart. Still, Barry won her court case against Chaplin, and the headlines surrounding the scandal put a serious dent in the comedian's public support. This is where our last Chaplin episode ended. Today, we'll talk about why Chaplin's personal popularity dipped to an all-time low, and why, in this climate, Chaplin's next film, Monsieur Verdot, brought him nothing but trouble. Join us, won't you? for the story of Charlie Chaplin's Hollywood Exile. There's no credible evidence that Charlie Chaplin was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party, which, remember, would perhaps have been an ill-advised thing for him to be from a public relations point of view, but it was still not illegal. If Chaplin was an actual communist, rather than a vocal communist sympathizer, then he was more hypocritical than the writers who were mocked, sometimes by one another, as swimming pool radicals. Charlie Chaplin gave almost as brilliant a performance in a business meeting as he did in his comedies, wrote Bud Schulberg, who called Chaplin, quote, another of those idealists who talked socialism and practiced capitalism. Chaplin lived large, and he had a habit of entering into relationships that ended expensively, and his personal wealth was tied to United Artists, and thus to the wider film industry, so it would have been incredibly difficult for him to divorce himself from the capitalistic structure of the film industry on the whole, even if he tried, which it doesn't seem like he did. However, if you were someone like J. Edgar Hoover, and you were looking for high-profile targets to suppress, to show that you were doing something to eradicate subversives, well then with Chaplin, there was a lot of smoke which you could point to, even if you knew there was no fire. More than the people in Hollywood who we now know were actual active Communist Party members, Chaplin dedicated much of his life and career to subversion. 
not subversion of the United States government or social system necessarily, although certainly he sometimes used his culturally subversive films to critique those things. This wasn't so much of a problem when he was the lovable little tramp, even when he was using the tramp to comment on the soullessness of the industrialized system, which was largely an American gift to the march of capitalism. But in the late 1940s and 1950s, when anyone who didn't support unfettered accumulation and consumption was a potential traitor, and anyone whose private life didn't conform to a squeaky clean image of the American nuclear family was considered a threat, Chaplin's history of celebrating the literal little guy, paired with his pattern of sexual impropriety and his foreign citizenship, all put him on the wrong side of a binary divide. Chaplin also had a history of saying things that he believed without worrying about how he'd be perceived. He apparently believed, not totally without reason or historical precedent, that his fame would protect him from any and all negative consequences. In several speeches delivered to live audiences and on the radio, Chaplin warmly supported the Soviet army and people. In a speech delivered in San Francisco in 1942, where Chaplin had been asked to fill in for the U.S. ambassador to Russia when the ambassador lost his voice, Chaplin addressed the Russians in the crowd and said, The way your countrymen are fighting and dying at this very moment, it is an honor and privilege to call you comrades. Chaplin went further than that in a speech in New York, where he called the Soviet purges of dissidents, quote, a wonderful thing. At the same appearance, he stated, The only people who object to communism and use it as a bugaboo are the Nazi agents in this country. Even in the midst of the war, when Russia and the U.S. were allies, this last statement was questionable and was either an ill-thought-out exaggeration or a deliberate taunt to the reactionary media. In late 1942, a columnist named Westwood Pegler declared that he, quote, would like to know why Charlie Chaplin has been allowed to stay in the United States about 40 years without becoming a citizen. It was around this time that Orson Welles went to Charlie Chaplin's house and pitched him on a film about the French murderer Henri Landru. Chaplin calls the proposed film a documentary in his autobiography, but it seems like what Wells was actually proposing was a hybrid of dramatized nonfiction. He and Chaplin would collaborate on a script based around the idea of Chaplin playing Landrieu. Chaplin quickly decided he wasn't interested in collaborating on a script, but the more he thought about it, the more he was drawn to the idea of playing the story of a killer like Landrieu for dark comedy. He offered Wells $5,000 for his idea, and according to Chaplin, Wells accepted. According to Wells, Wells wrote the screenplay, and Chaplin gave him $1,500 for it and deprived him of adequate credit. Wells also called Chaplin, quote, deeply dumb in many ways and, quote, the cheapest man who ever lived. Anyway, Chaplin's central attraction to the character was, as he put it, how could this man so methodically take these women out and cut them up and burn them in his incinerator and then tend his flowers with the black smoke coming out of his chimney? The answer, Chaplin decided, was that the killer would have been forced through circumstance to practice a murderous form of capitalism. Monsieur Verdot would be, quote, a paradox of virtue and vice 
who, having lost his job at a bank due to the Depression, marries a series of rich ladies and murders them for their money to support the basic bourgeois lifestyle requirements of his handicapped wife and son. Going off the saying that war was the logical extension of diplomacy, Chaplin said, Badeau feels that murder is the logical extension of business. It was while Chaplin was writing this film that Joan Barry broke into Chaplin's mansion, and to get rid of her, Chaplin bought her a train ticket to New York. That train ticket would become the linchpin of the Mann Act case against him. When Barry returned to Chaplin's house a few months later, claiming she was destitute and carrying his child, Chaplin called the police and had her arrested for trespassing. That's when Barry filed the paternity suit. Immediately after that, Charlie and Una O'Neill got married, and to avoid the media, they moved into a house in Santa Barbara for a two-month extended honeymoon. It was when they finally returned to Los Angeles that Chaplin got word that Barry's paternity suit was the tip of the iceberg. Chaplin was friendly with the Supreme Court Justice Frank Murphy, who warned the star that he had heard some feds at a party talking about their plot, quote, to get Chaplin. Murphy advised Chaplin to hire a low-profile lawyer, because if he hired some famous big gun, it would make it look like he had some reason to fear whatever the FBI had up their sleeves. When the federal investigation of him rose from the realm of rumor to a certainty, Chaplin was afraid, and he went against Murphy's advice and hired Hollywood superstar lawyer Jerry Geisler. Geisler agreed with Chaplin that the charges the FBI were trying to indict him on were totally bogus. But then a grand jury did indict him, and if found guilty, Chaplin faced a punishment of 20 years in federal prison. He was already being tried in the court of public opinion. Newspapers, which had faithfully followed every turn in both the Mann Act case and Barry's paternity suits, published photographs of Chaplin being fingerprinted by the federal marshal. The marshal had the power to remove the photographers from the scene, but he did not. Things got better for Charlie, press-wise, when the newspapers were forced to report the findings that blood tests had revealed that he was not the father of Joan Barry's child. Then, in his first trial, on the federal charges, Chaplin was found not guilty. At Geisler's instruction, he shook hands with every member of the jury. When he got to a woman who his lawyer had wanted to block from the jury because she had been a reporter for the L.A. Times... Chaplin was surprised when the juror smiled at him and warmly said, It's all right, Charlie. It's still a free country. Free, but not always fair. The first jury in the paternity case deadlocked, and in the second trial, Chaplin was deemed financially responsible for Joan Barry's child, despite the blood tests that proved he wasn't the father. Chaplin almost completely glosses over the paternity trial in his autobiography, perhaps out of deference to his family. Una was pregnant with their first child at the time, and it certainly couldn't have been easy on a new marriage. It's also possible that Chaplin didn't think too hard about his troubles while the trial was happening, because, as he put it, I never faltered in my belief that a good comedy would solve all my troubles. Even acknowledging the need to rehab his rep, Chaplin admits that he felt unmotivated while working on Monsieur Verdot, and thus it took over two years to complete, even though the shoot only lasted 12 weeks. The censorship office didn't help matters by rejecting his script flat out. They had a number of issues. 
so many issues, in fact, that in a letter to Chaplin, the censors agreed to, quote, pass over those elements which seem to be antisocial in their concept and significance. Meaning, quote, the sections of the story in which Verdot indicts the system and impugns the present day social structure. But they could not accept the speech Chaplin was to make at the end of the film, in which his character creates a moral equivalency between that system, particularly what would later be called the military industrial complex, and his own serial murders. However remiss the prosecutor has been in complimenting me, he at least admits that I have brains. Thank you, monsieur, I have. And for 35 years, I used them honestly. After that, nobody wanted them. So I was forced to go into business for myself. As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? <laughs> As a mass killer, I'm an amateur by comparison. However, I do not wish to lose my temper because very shortly I shall lose my head. Nevertheless, upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, I have this to say. I shall see you all very soon. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. The censors also opposed the very idea that a married man would take multiple other wives. This phase of the story, claimed the censors, has about it a distasteful flavor of illicit sex, which in our judgment is not good. When Chaplin requested a meeting with censorship czar Joseph Breen to discuss the matter, 
Chaplin was interrogated by an underling who insisted that the script was unacceptably anti-Catholic due to one scene in which the killer is allowed to converse with a priest in prison. Somehow, Chaplin was able to make just a few minor changes to his script and get the go-ahead to make the movie. When the Breen office screened the finished film for members of the Legion of Decency to approve it for exhibition, Chaplin was allowed to sit in on the screening. I have never felt so lonely as I did on that occasion, Chaplin wrote. But after the movie ended, Breen told the audience he thought the film had passed the test. No one disagreed. One viewer said, Well, it's okay by me. There's no cleavage. Chaplin was suspicious that the film had passed so easily. He wondered, would his enemies use other means to get in his way? While he was putting the finishing touches on the final cut, Chaplin received a summons ordering him to come to Washington on a date to be named later to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Chaplin's wording in his autobiography on this issue is imprecise, but he implies that he was one of the original Unfriendly 19, which no other account claims. Maybe he would have been the 20th man, but he was never formally subpoenaed. Instead, he kept receiving postponements, essentially forcing him to put his work on hold while he was waiting for an official subpoena with a date and time. All the while, throughout 1946 and the first half of 1947, Chaplin was frequently invoked as an example of Hollywood filth by senators like William Langer and John Rankin, who publicly suggested that Chaplin should be deported. In June 1947, HUAC announced its intention to subpoena Chaplin, along with other high-profile figures like Edward G. Robinson and Dorothy Parker. This wasn't much of a surprise to Chaplin, who knew that his friend, a composer named Hans Eisler, who had found work in Hollywood after being exiled from Nazi Germany, had been targeted by the committee. Eisler's brother, Gerhardt, really was a communist spy, and to have demonstrable ties to him or his brother became radioactive, almost guaranteeing guilt by association in the eyes of Congress. But still, Chaplin's official subpoena didn't come. Finally, Chaplin decided to force the issue by sending HUAC a telegram. In order that you may be completely up to date on my thinking, I suggest you view carefully my latest production, Monsieur Verdot. It is against war and futile slaughter of our youth. I will tell you what I think you want to know. I am not a communist. Neither have I ever joined any political party or organization in my life. I am what you call a peacemonger. I hope this will not offend you. So please state definitely when I am to be called to Washington. Yours truly, Charles Chaplin. To this telegram, as Chaplin later wrote, I received a surprisingly courteous reply to the effect that my appearance would not be necessary and that I could consider the matter closed. Of course, it was not closed, because it wasn't just Huack who was after him. Chaplin's real enemies were J. Edgar Hoover and gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. And wouldn't you know it, Hopper and Hoover were in cahoots. Knowing that the FBI director had a whole file on Chaplin, in 1947, Hopper wrote to him asking for backup for an offensive she was planning to launch in her column. You give me the material, she wrote, and I'll blast. 
the FBI's file on Chaplin, several pages of which you can easily find and read online, show that after the Mann Act case fizzled out, Hoover instructed the Bureau to find evidence proving that Chaplin was a foreign agent. They didn't find any. But as it turned out, Hoover didn't really need Hopper, and Hopper didn't really need his secret files. Although she did allow Hoover to plant stories in her column that painted Chaplin in a bad light. But there were plenty of other journalists and activists eager to tar and feather the little tramp. Instead of going to Washington in the fall of 1947 with the Hollywood Ten, Chaplin donated $1,000 to their defense and went to New York to launch Monsieur Verdot. Before he even arrived, the Daily News called him, quote, a fellow traveler, and announced their intention to make him answer, quote, one or two embarrassing questions at a press conference planned in support of the film. At the press conference, Chaplin opened by joking about the negative reaction to the film. He greeted the media by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to waste your time. I should say, proceed with the butchery. If there's any question anybody wants to ask, I'm here, far away at this old grey head. The first reporter to speak was a woman seated in the front row. She asked Chaplin, Are you a communist? He responded, No. The next question, please. Then Chaplin was barraged with questions from an interloper representing the Catholic war veterans, who demanded to know why the British-born Chaplin hadn't become an American citizen. Chaplin didn't do himself any favors by calling himself a citizen of the world, claiming that only 30% of his income came from U.S. box office receipts, and adding, The United States enjoys 100% taxation on it, so you see, I am a very good-paying guest. Then a reporter asked him about Hans Eisler, who Chaplin confirmed was a friend of his. When a reporter noted that Chaplin, quote, seemed to like communists, Chaplin said, Nobody is going to tell me whom to like or dislike. We haven't come to that yet. But, of course, we had. The only friendly voice at the press conference was James Agee's, the screenwriter, film critic, and novelist, then a reporter for Time magazine, asked, How does it feel to be an artist who has enriched the world with so much happiness and understanding of the little people, and to be derided and held up to hate and scorn by the so-called representatives of the American press? Chaplin was so flustered that he couldn't provide an answer. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, he said. I thought this conference was to be an interview about my film. Instead, it has turned into a political brawl, so I have nothing further to say. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. At Monsieur Verdoux's premiere, the audience laughed at the movie. All Charlie could hear were hisses. He and his partners in United Artists had been counting on the movie grossing at least $12 million, and they needed it to do close to that to make back its cost and to bail the studio out of debt that had accrued while Chaplin had been distracted by other things. Arthur Kelly of United Artists found Chaplin in the lobby after the movie and said, Of course, it's not going to gross any $12 million. Monsieur Verdot did good business in New York for a few weeks, and then tumbleweeds started to float through the theaters. Maybe Chaplin's faithful fans were enough to fill theaters for about a month, but the general public had been scared off by a decade's worth of negative headlines. Or maybe audiences didn't know how to respond to and didn't spread positive word about a film whose protagonist was a not entirely unsympathetic serial killer whose backyard incinerator evoked the Holocaust, while his self-defense in damning atomic warfare implicated each and every American viewer in capitalistic war crimes. Of course, those who were convinced Chaplin was a dangerous subversive were not allowed to let the market decide his fate. The film was picketed by Catholics in New Jersey and banned by theater owners in Ohio. The American Legion had pressured theater owners to stop showing it in Denver. Finally, United Artists was pressured into removing the film from general release. Chaplin insisted he was not discouraged or deterred. He got to work planning Limelight, a film about his early days in vaudeville. When it was finished, he and his wife planned a trip to Europe. But for months, Chaplin tried to secure a re-entry visa and received no response. Finally, he got a call from a U.S. immigration official asking if they could meet. Chaplin invited the guy over to his house. On the day, three men arrived with a female secretary in tow. The men carried tape recorders and a dossier, which Chaplin described as being a foot high. They asked him if he had ever been a communist. He said never. They asked him if he had ever committed adultery. He asked, What is the definition of adultery? And the agent responded, Let's say fornication with another man's wife. Chaplin took a quick inventory and then said, No, he had never done that. They asked him why he had never become a citizen and why he followed the party line. He said that if they could tell him what the party line was, he would tell them whether or not he followed it. This wasn't purely evasive. 
It was probably a joke about how the Communist Party line notoriously changed too fast for a casual supporter to keep up. And then Chaplin said, Do you know how I got into all this trouble? By obliging your government. Chaplin explained how he had come to give his first speech, advocating for the opening of a second front during World War II, filling in for Ambassador Joseph Davies when he came down with laryngitis. After a three-hour interrogation, Chaplin was invited to the immigration office, where he signed for his re-entry visa. They asked him how long he would be gone, and he said, not more than six months. They told him he was free to go, and said, hurry home. When Chaplin and his family were on the boat crossing the Atlantic, he received a cable. Here I'm going to quote from his autobiography. It stated that I was to be barred from the United States and that before I could re-enter the country, I would have to go before an immigration board of inquiry to answer charges of a political nature and of moral turpitude. The United Press wanted to know if I had any comments to make. Every nerve in me tensed. Whether I re-entered that unhappy country or not, was of little consequence to me. I would like to have told them that the sooner I was rid of that hate-beleaguered atmosphere, the better, that I was fed up with America's insults and moral pomposity, that the whole subject was damned boring. But everything I possessed was in the States, and I was terrified they might find a way of confiscating it. Now... I could expect any unscrupulous action from them. So instead I came out with a pompous statement to the effect that I would return and answer their charges and that my re-entry permit was not a scrap of paper but a document given to me in good faith by the United States government. Blah, blah, blah. He didn't return to answer their charges. Years later, the IRS demanded taxes on his earnings from Limelight up to 1955, even though he had been barred from entering the United States since 1952 and thus had not lived there. Again, not wanting to deal with a battle, Chaplin told his lawyer to agree to a settlement. What had actually happened? How was the U.S. government justifying his de facto deportation? When he wrote his autobiography in 1964, Chaplin didn't offer a real explanation. He wrote, In summing up my situation, I would say that in an atmosphere of powerful cliques and invisible governments, I endangered a nation's antagonism and unfortunately lost the affection of the American public. Claire Bloom, who co-starred in Limelight, would note that Chaplin had told her during production of that movie that he was nostalgic for the UK and wanted to visit. But he was afraid that if he left the US, they wouldn't let him back in. He had been aware that the FBI had been trying for years to prove he was a communist, unsuccessfully. They were in fact hyper-vigilantly looking for any crumb of evidence that they could use against him. After being informed that he was not going to be allowed to re-enter the US, Chaplin sent Una back to Los Angeles to bring back those assets of his that she could transport. There she learned that the FBI had been interrogating and harassing Chaplin's friends and employees 
mercilessly. They never came up with much of anything. Certainly nothing Chaplin could be thrown in prison over. But there was a law that would allow them to get rid of him. What the Truman administration actually invoked to revoke his reentry was the U.S. Code of Laws on Aliens and Citizenship, which in Section 137, Paragraph C, made it legal to deny entry to non-citizens on the grounds of, quote, morals, health, or insanity, or for advocating communism or associating with communists or pro-communist organizations. Of course, many people advocated communism or were associated with communists. That's what this whole podcast series is about. And many other filmmakers ended up going to Europe or Mexico to work when they were denied the opportunity to do so in Hollywood. But most of them were U.S. citizens. Chaplin was, as far as I can tell, the only Hollywood filmmaker during the Blacklist era who was exiled based on this law, because he was the only Hollywood person the government had a problem with to whom this law applied. This answers the question of how Charlie Chaplin was barred entry from the United States for 20 years until he was allowed to accept an honorary Oscar in 1972. But if the question is how the U.S. government was able to get away with this... After the FBI had tried and failed to amass evidence proving that Chaplin was a communist spy or even just a garden-variety member of the party, that's a more difficult question to answer. To me, it seems like they got away with it because Chaplin didn't fight it and because nobody else stood up and fought on his behalf. And this brings us to the real key here, the factor that explains why Chaplin was such a threat to the American power structure and also at its mercy— Chaplin was an independent filmmaker. He owned his own studio, United Artists, which wasn't a signatory to the MPAA agreements that united every other studio in the enforcement of the unacknowledged but very real blacklist. In other words, he could make any movie he wanted and make sure it got a release. Movie theaters could refuse to show it, and many did refuse to show Limelight due to a boycott promoted by the American Legion. But as hypocritical as many Red Hunters could be, it was impossible to stop Chaplin entirely from plying his trade and running his business, as long as he was in America. On the other hand, maybe Chaplin's situation would never have escalated to the point that it did if he had been an employee of a studio. It's apparent that studios were able to protect selected stars and employees if the stars and employees were willing to do a modicum of damage control. There may have been deals between the FBI or Congress and individual studios or the MPAA on the whole, as John Garfield's daughter has suggested. Bernard Gordon, former head of the Screen Readers Union and later a blacklisted and exiled screenwriter and producer, found something when he was working at Paramount before the blacklist that led him to infer that there was clear quid pro quo between FBI director J. Edgar Hoover and at least one studio. Part of Gordon's job was to go through file cabinets containing every script, story, and treatment that the studio had ever paid for. One day, he stumbled on a file labeled J. Edgar Hoover. In one of his memoirs, Gordon writes, A closer look verified that over the years, the studio had purchased original story material from Hoover. None of this story material had ever been used, but the files showed he'd been paid for his contribution to our cultural resources, 
not once, but a number of times. How surprising to find that Hoover was in the pay of the studios. I wondered how many times the head of the FBI collected from other studios. In his other memoir, Gordon describes the same discovery, but there he uses the phrase payoff and suggests Hoover was perhaps blackmailing the studios to fund his own gambling debts. Who's to say? Perhaps studios were paying Hoover to give them special treatment, to allow them to pick and choose who went on the chopping block and who didn't. Or maybe J. Edgar Hoover was just a frustrated screenwriter. Next week, we'll learn more about the ways in which the FBI supported the blacklist, with the help of the head of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan. Join us then, won't you? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz, and our editor is Henry Malofsky. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks this week to our special guest, Leopold Hughes, who played Charlie Chaplin. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, it's really important that you find a way to tell anybody you can, any way that you can. You can tweet about us. Our Twitter handle is at RememberThisPod. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or in the podcatcher of your choice. And rate and review us on iTunes, too. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I'll be back some more day. I'll be back some more day. I'm going away. I'm going away. I'll be back some more day. I'll be back some more day. I'll be back some more day. Please tell me now what more can I do? Please tell me now what more can I do? Lord knows I can't get along with you.